Hi, good afternoon, and welcome back in the, to another year of CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson, the CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media, and a contributing <clears throat> columnist on CIO.com, where I write about boardroom and technology strategy issues. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the generous support of my friends at CIO.com and the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live to you right now on LinkedIn and also on YouTube on our special channel there, IDG Tech Talk, and encourage you to sign up for that as well. We'll be watching for your questions on our live streams today, and one of our editors will be picking them out and passing them along so that we can pose them to our guest. And I'm very very honored and privileged today to start off our New Year season with CIO Andre Mendez of the U.S. Department of Commerce. Andre stepped into the DOC top technology leadership job in April of 2020, just a few weeks into the global pandemic. His overall responsibilities and oversight include all the technology and operations for the Department of Commerce itself plus 13 associated bureaus, which amounts to an annual budget of about $2.8 billion for 21, and overseeing the work of more than 100,000 employees and contractors. Some of those 13 bureaus that are part of the Department of Commerce are quite well known to most of us, such as the U.S. Census Bureau or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and prior to his current role, Andre served as CIO for one of those bureaus, the International Trade Administration, which is the one that manages all of our global trade issues for the United States. Before ITA, Andre spent eight years with the U.S. Agency for Global Media in various executive roles. He was CEO, CFO, Chief Operations Officer, and of course, CIO and CTO. I've had the privilege of knowing Andre since his very first early days in IT leadership and business roles. We, he held various CXO positions, generally at the top of the technology stack, with companies and organizations such as the Special Olympics International, the public broadcasting system, and then in the private sector with several pharma and healthcare companies. And among the many honors that he has collected across an incredible multifaceted career are an MIT award for IT innovation and last year induction into our very own CIO Hall of Fame. Andre, thanks so much for joining me here today. It's great to have you. Oh, Mary friend, it's always a pleasure. It's been a, uh, a long relationship that has been incredibly rewarding. All so right. I appreciate you inviting me. Great. Well, I know our, <laughs> our readers at CIO Magazine in the old days and then CIO.com and Computer World have always appreciated your, uh, your perspectives on things. But let's, before we get into some of the uh, impressive technology things you have underway, let's put the work and the goals of the Department of Commerce into perspective for our viewers today. Uh, tell us a few things that many Americans may not realize about the broad scope of the mission that you have under your operation now. So uh, you mentioned uh, probably the two uh, best known bureaus, uh, you know, the, the census and NOAA, mm -hmm. uh, which everybody is familiar with. Um, but uh, there are uh, a substantial number of other ones that have a crucial role to play 
in the the development and nurturing of commerce, not only uh, to, within the United States, but mm -hmm. also across the globe. Uh, the U.S. Patent and Trade Office, for example, mm -hmm. is a remarkable example of an organization that leads uh, all of the patent and trademark, uh, you know, issues and and regulatory. Uh, you know, issues across the entire globe, and that is often imitated by all of the other countries because the model has been so successful. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, BEA, is the bureau that is responsible for putting out things as, uh, you know, as important as the, the gross domestic product, the GDP numbers, mm -hmm. uh, on, on a regular basis, on a quarterly basis, which is, of course, a, uh, an enormous driver uh, of uh, policy uh, and, and also business and investment because it reflects, you know, the conditions, the economic conditions across the entire country. Mm -hmm. You mentioned ITA and, and of course, uh, you know, trade being an enormous driver of economic activity and progress uh, is front and center and ITA has a long-standing practice of, uh, of helping American businesses to operate abroad and to and to broaden the overall export markets, mm -hmm. uh, but also has a substantial role to play in terms of our imports uh, and some of the issues associated with it, like, for example, uh, the product dumping, price manipulations, mm -hmm. which are very important to ensure that we operate in a market that is both uh, very agile, but also very fair. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, commerce, it really is a multifaceted operation across a variety of variety of areas. Well, I know you mentioned the Bureau of Economic Analysis, um, that it's a smaller bureau, but that GDP number, there is a lot of very sophisticated technology behind the timeliness that that has. Tell us about that, about that, you know, what well, happens if it's a few seconds late? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. So we operate in an environment uh, where, uh, you know, investment firms, for example, spend mm -hmm. an inordinate amount of money to ensure that they can operate as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And when I'm talking about as fast as possible, I'm talking about hundreds of a second in terms of realizing trades and executing trades. Mm -hmm. uh, and they spend an enormous amount of money in optimizing that technology. And so it is extremely important that when a bureau like BEA uh, releases a number that is going to be scrutinized and acted upon from an investment standpoint, that that would be absolutely timely mm -hmm. uh, down to the second, uh, because an enormous amount of, uh, of subsequent events mm -hmm. are going to take place after that that are dependent on the publication of that number. Yeah. And, yeah. So, uh, and so the exacting requirements uh, for that timeliness uh, are, are quite, uh, quite uh, uh, astonishing. But mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, uh, they are... Uh, well-established, uh, and they perform very, very well in that regard. Yeah. Well, let's get next into some of the top technology, some of the top IT priorities that you have for the Department of Commerce today. Um, how much did those shift up or down in terms of the, um, the, the importance scale during these very disruptive past two years? Um, interestingly enough, the, uh, the, the, the main objectives, uh, the main strategic direction uh, has changed very little. Okay. Um, you know, before the, the onset of the pandemic, uh, the Department of Commerce already had a very substantial investment mm -hmm. in telework facilities. It was already part of a large number of bureaus 
uh, modus operandi. And also with some of them, because of their international components, uh, they were effectively used to dealing with workforces uh, that were spread all over the world. And so that remoteness uh, was almost second nature. Mm -hmm. uh, USPTO is a longstanding leader in terms of telework, not only in the federal government, but across all, all work, working environments. Mm -hmm. And so that was fairly seamless. So we didn't have to pay a lot of attention to that and move away from all of the other vectors that we already had in place mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, you know, uh, migration to uh, cloud environments, in terms of cybersecurity improvements, including migration to zero trust architecture, which we had started with some of our bureaus you know, uh, two, three years ago, mm -hmm. uh, and with some of them even longer ago. Um, and, and also IT modernization, uh, you know, yes. one of the quandaries in the federal government is is effectively the amount of technical uh, debt that we uh, that we have had by virtue of uh, you know budget uh, you know uh, issues and so that those continue to be the main priorities that we are working on in addition to workforce retention and retraining uh, from legacy skill sets into the new environment and the new skill sets that are required going forward. Well, and I think for, um, especially for those of us who are outside of government organizations, the sheer complexity and unpredictability of the funding for your budgets makes it seem like a, especially from a technology leadership standpoint, <clears throat> it makes it seem like a challenge that's on a whole other level that the private sector doesn't have to deal with. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, at any point in time, we are effectively dealing uh, with three fiscal years, mm -hmm. right? And often the, the delineation of the future uh, fiscal years is dependent on the previous fiscal years. Uh, and, and, and those are not very clear. At, at this point right now, we're effectively operating in a continuing resolution, mm -hmm. which has us at funding levels for fiscal year 21. Okay. We are waiting for uh, the, uh, the, uh, final budget for fiscal year 22. Mm -hmm. We've already put in our fiscal year 23 requests uh, last summer, and currently we're working on our fiscal year 24 requirements. Mm -hmm. But of course, all of those are dependent on the previous numbers, some of which we do not know. So it is a, a challenge, mm -hmm. uh, but one that uh, you know we have, uh, we have sort of, to a certain degree, grown accustomed to, and that we understand as we move past our calculations. Mm -hmm. And it's not as inflexible as, as everybody thinks when they're outside of the government, uh, because there is an understanding on the part of, of Congress and OMB that mm -hmm. the, the agencies are dealing with an ever-changing uh, you know, circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we've seen situations where things change at a later date because everybody comes to an agreement that they need to. Right. Well, and when... Um... Uh, well, we talked earlier, I was, I was asking you a lot of questions about the complexities of being essentially the top CIO over 13 different bureaus. And when you came in in early 2020, those 13 bureaus all had their own CIOs doing their own things, reporting to their own um, bureau leaders. How have you, what did you change? What sort of things did you do in terms of either restructuring or reorganizing? I, I know when I asked you about this, you had mentioned compliance and regulatory issues were very much on the top of your priority list, which was a little unexpected. I thought it might be other more kind of pedestrian CIO things, but it was compliance and regulation. Well, <clears throat> the 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 challenge with uh, you know having a, a cadre of bureaus 
that are so mm-hmm. diverse and some of them so large mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, you cannot assume a completely centralized role and expect that you will have the agility necessary to move on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And so it is extremely important that the CIOs that are at the bureaus um, are cognizant of that dichotomy between the, the Department of Commerce and the bureaus. Mm-hmm. And I think that they have they have understood that and they've responded to the challenge associated with that of uh, making sure that they pay attention to all of their of their operational issues on a constant basis, mm-hmm. that they map a strategy that is bureau specific, but that that fits in, within a strategy that is department specific, mm-hmm. uh, and that provides some guidance uh, overall in terms of technical direction. So I've issued a, a technical statement of direction when I first joined the Department of Commerce mm-hmm. that basically laid out some you know high level priorities for everybody. But then, uh, Mary Fran, when it comes to this type of situation, it is the kind of situation where you cannot rule by fiat, right? You cannot make people do things because that will be extremely disruptive. So what you have to do is bring about uh, an understanding of a shared agenda, an Mm -hmm. understanding of a shared desire to excel that can be best achieved by leveraging economies of scale, Mm -hmm. by helping each other, uh, you know, uh, uh, organize around, uh, you know, very joint uh, objectives, let's right. say, and even leverage the strengths of certain bureaus to help other bureaus rather than having to depend on the Department of Commerce. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. NOAA has an internal organization that was necessitated by their geographic dispersion and, and massive uh, bandwidth and networking uh, needs called N-Wave, and they are an exceptional organization that operates on the very edge of uh, high-speed networking and reliability. Well, it didn't make any sense for all these bureaus to be contracting services from the private sector vendors Mm -hmm. when we had this internal player that was just rooted in extreme uh, technical and operational excellence. And so over the last two years or so, We have basically managed to migrate almost all of the bureaus into the N-Wave environment, Mm -hmm. right? Not only dramatically increasing our throughput, dramatically increasing our resilience and and reliability, but also dramatically reducing costs. And so Mm -hmm. that is the type of collaborative environment that I've been trying to foster within the bureaus of the Department of Commerce so that we help each other achieve excellence by leveraging subject matter expertise, Mm Um, and best practices from one bureau to another, right. and therefore achieve a joint, a joint, uh, uh, and fast and rapid progress. And and that has been very successful because we have a whole slew of new CIOs that have absolutely bought into that uh, concept. Mm-hmm. That I, I, as far as I can tell, don't feel threatened by it, <laughs> and therefore collaborate uh, yeah. very openly. Well, and um, for anyone who'd like to hear more about the inner workings of one of the bureaus in November, one of our CIO Leadership Live guests was Jamie Holcomb, who is the CIO for the U.S. Patent and Trade Office, which is one of the bureaus under the Department of Commerce. Um, I want you to talk a little bit, Andre, about there is a CIO council for the Department of Commerce because you've got your operation as the office of the Department of Commerce, and then there are the 13 bureaus, and you and all your all your CIOs get together regularly. But when you came in, you changed the way that meeting was operating. And I want you to talk about a little bit about that because it became more of a collaborative organization from uh, from what you've told me so far. 
Yeah, it mm. it um, you know historically uh, it it was very you know inner focused in terms of uh, what was happening at the Department of Commerce uh, mm-hmm. proper, and I think that what we've tried to do is uh, highlight some of the happenings at the bureaus, mm-hmm. highlight the progress made in joint efforts, um, and therefore create an environment where it was far more enticing for them to participate. Yes. And, and when I say participate, I mean fully participate rather than just being on the call, on the phone call or the meeting. Uh, and so I think that that has generated tremendous results. Uh, I think, you know, when we uh, faced a challenge with SolarWinds mm-hmm. uh, and there was an opportunity for some funding, additional funding for cybersecurity, um, you know, we didn't follow the old model where we would get a, a portion of money and then, uh, you know, do a pro rata distribution throughout the bureaus and they would go about and do their own thing. Uh, we created a, uh, you know, a cybersecurity task force composed of the CIOs and the best technical experts across the entire department. Mm-hmm. We brought them together and we charged them with creating a unified cybersecurity strategy for the Department of Commerce uh, that mm-hmm. would leverage uh, a smaller number of platforms, uh, common platforms, and that would allow us to generate economies of scale from a purchasing standpoint but also from a training standpoint and allowing us to leverage the expertise from various bureaus into the smaller bureaus, for example, mm-hmm. so that they could benefit from a level of uh, and capacity of uh, problem solving that otherwise uh, would be left to each one of them individually creating challenges. Uh, Lord knows that uh, you know the challenges that we face uh, from uh, the people who are trying to do us harm are enormous. Yes. And they are constant. Uh, and to have 13 different uh, bureaus have their own siloed efforts to fight that and to resist mm-hmm. the constant onslaught uh, would be nonsense. And mm-hmm. so uh, with this uh, shared approach, I think we're in a much better place to ensure the continuity of the uh, of the work of the Department of Commerce, mm-hmm. uh, despite the constant uh, you know avalanche of uh, of attempts. Well, <clears throat> does it help in that effort that one of your bureaus is NIST, the National uh, Institute of Standards and Technology, w- which basically wrote the standards for zero trust architecture? It, it helps tremendously because mm-hmm. we are always and constantly looking at the operational implementation versus uh, the established and published best practices mm-hmm. and standards associated. Uh, with these efforts. And that keeps us in line uh, because uh, we want to make sure that we are a prime example of implementation of the standards that regulate uh, or, or that uh, direct the efforts across the entire federal government and the private sector. Yeah. Um, and, and so that keeps us on our toes because they are not at all shy about letting us know when <laughs> we are not following to the line. The <laughs> extraordinarily uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, useful guidelines that NIST has put out. Right. Um, I often ask guests on this program to talk about the size and scope of the technology teams and how they may have essentially uh, had to reorganize to cope with hybrid work or even remote work strategies. That's a very big question for you because there's, you know, 14 different departments basically involved here. But what what can you tell us about your, do you have an overall policy, for instance, for hybrid work 
or return to hybrid work strategies. And I know this is hard for you because you're one of those in-person, likes to walk around and meet with people face-to-face. -face. So I know this has been, this is difficult these days, but, but it's going on and on. So everybody's dealing with it. So talk about that, about the hybrid work strategies and are they uniform across all the different bureaus and the Department of Commerce or does everybody pick from a list of ways to approach it? So, you know, interesting that you that, that, that you bring that up, Mary friend, because even this morning, uh, we had a meeting to try to establish a common expect a set of expectations and work mm -hmm. and workarounds uh, that would allow us to have as seamless as possible a, a hybrid working environment that would be conducive. Mm -hmm. uh, and so rather than letting everybody go about their way, uh, you know, we are we are trying to leverage those uh, those economies of scale for that as well. Um, it, it has been it has been challenging, no doubt. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, it, it's a different paradigm. Let me give you an example. I have uh, CIOs that started over the last two years, right? Mm -hmm. That have never met their staff in person, right? Right. And while it it is a little easier for folks that have been around for a long time that have already established those interpersonal relationships mm -hmm. to now operate in a remote environment, it is far more challenging for new individuals coming on board. Uh, you know, assuming a leadership role, sometimes with hundreds of individuals under their ages, mm -hmm. uh, and being able to establish that type of working relationship. And they have been remarkable at it. It's amazing how adaptive, uh, you know, the human, uh, the human uh, species mm -hmm. is uh, at dealing with these new challenges and, and, then, and then going about figuring out the way to work it out. Is it optimum? Of course not. Of course mm -hmm. not. For me, it has been a tremendous challenge. But it's something that we have to deal with. And so it's an evolutionary pressure, so to speak, that has led to an evolution of, of the work environment and leadership styles across everybody uh, in yeah. the federal sector, in the private sector, uh, and in the Department mm -hmm. of Commerce. Yeah. Not easy, but uh, but doable, obviously. Yes. Well, and um, for a while I've been asking people, what are some of the changes in this remote working and hybrid work strategies how has it changed the culture of the organization? Um, and I kept asking that, assuming that, you know, a month or two from now, we could go back to what the culture was like. But I think we've all accepted that that, has, that that train has moved on. So when you think about the way that the pandemic and all of the, the different challenges that have been going on for the last two years have been happening, um, how, do, uh, how do you think the cultures of the department, the work culture of the Department of Commerce and of all the bureaus, um, how and where have they changed for the better? And what are some of the things that you hope we can leave behind us? Mm. Um, I, I think a, having a joint challenge, right, that uh, applies to everybody is, is, both, mm -hmm. is both a challenge, but also an opportunity, right? <clears throat> there are all kinds of people that actually thrived in this environment by virtue of their personality, right? Mm -hmm. They actually prefer this environment uh, by virtue of their personality. And other people like me who have struggled with it. But the reality is that all jointly have faced the same challenge and had to react accordingly. Mm -hmm. So in a strange way, uh, a crisis generates not only the need for change, but an opportunity to establish a, a partnership to establish an esprit de corps because mm -hmm. we are all dealing with the same challenge mm -hmm. because that challenge is not only in the work environment, but for the majority of the individuals out there in the workforce, 
the same challenge that they experienced at home with their children being in remote learning, mm-hmm. right? With their children not being able to, to socialize as much uh, with their friends, uh, with them themselves in their personal life, not having that opportunity for going out for dinner in a weekend. And so there is an esprit de corps that comes from all being involved in a situation that is supercilia to all of us. Mm-hmm. And that as a result uh, creates partners um, out of uh, out of necessity. Yes. So culture wise, <clears throat> I think that there will be an adaptation. But just like we adapted to the remote work, we will adapt to the hybrid work and mm-hmm. we will continue moving forward. Mm-hmm. That is what uh, what basically sets us apart from uh, from all the other species yeah. is a, a rapid adaptability to the challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and <clears throat> we also talked, I've, I've been hearing a lot more often these days, I have conversations with CIOs about empathy and uh, expressing vulnerability and that sort of thing. And you had some very interesting um, examples you were giving me about as part of remote leadership, how someone like you who is extroverted and likes to walk around and talk to people in person. And I mean, you're just, you're very personable. And how have, how have you adapted to doing that sort of uh, relating to other human beings over cameras? So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that it was an overt decision or desire on my part, but as mm-hmm. the situation went on, I, I realized that I was reverting more and more to trying to work exactly the same way as I did before, but mm-hmm. in a remote environment, in a virtual environment. So in meetings uh, where previously you'd have uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the, uh, the challenge or the opportunity to express some vulnerability about uh, either something that was going on at work that was a particular challenge Mm -hmm. or even something in your personal life. I personally chose to to actually share those experiences online with uh, with the employee population, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and although you cannot receive the same type of empathy and response and feedback uh, that you would get in a room full of people where you actually have the opportunity to in depth look at the at the at the reactions, at the facial expressions, to read the at cues. the nuances mm-hmm. in speech that come to you, um, that there was, you know, to a certain degree, a similarity to that in the online environment, mm-hmm. and that you just needed to let yourself expose to it, um, and then uh, you know uh, reap reap the results that came back. Um, mm-hmm. Challenging, but again, something that we adapted to and. Uh, yeah. And that uh, we had to make work, you know, regardless of circumstance, because there was no alternative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to pivot now over to you had mentioned dealing with the solar winds cybersecurity mm-hmm. problem, and that that was that struck me as one of those um, a great example of how you uh, the Department of Commerce and your new organization there among all the bureaus how you deal with a major incident differently than perhaps it would have been dealt with a couple of years ago. Uh, talk through that a little bit about how and what you did to respond to the solar winds breach. <clears throat> so when that first came about, uh, you know, uh, when I was first alerted to what had happened with one of our bureaus, mm-hmm. uh, we went through a very rapid analysis of the events <clears throat> and tried to decipher, you know, the uh, the size and scope of the problem. Mm. And to me, as I kept hearing the details of what had happened from our vendors, uh, from our staff and from the intelligence community, it became absolutely obvious to me that this was an issue 
that was far larger than the bureau that had been affected. It was far larger than just the Department of Commerce. And it was even far larger than just the federal government. Because when you have a program, a, a, um, a piece of software, an implementation that is so ubiquitous throughout the entire computing world, a vulnerability in it uh, assumes a scope and a potential impact mm -hmm. that, that far exceeds uh, any of the concerns that Andre Mendes might have about that particular bureau or the Department of Commerce. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it became crystal clear uh, once that happened that we needed to declare a major incident. Yes. And so that's what we did in very short order. Uh, and uh, I think that that uh, hopefully uh, reaped benefits for everybody because that rapid response allowed them to uh, for the situation to be escalated mm -hmm. uh, and for the remediation and the protection uh, and the minimization um, of uh, of damage uh, took place very very quickly across the entire environment. Yeah. Now and so <clears throat> you know so you know it's uh, let's put it this way. Um, given the given the dichotomy between potentially overreacting overreacting a little bit to a to a, a major incident, mm -hmm. uh, or underreacting to what is potentially a global uh, situation, uh, I think uh, you know uh, going on the aggressive side of the response yeah. is probably the right way thing to do. Yeah, it's like <clears throat> I'll overreact now and apologize later. <laughs> It, it, it is, yeah. <laughs> now, was that something where you had mentioned your cybersecurity, your task force, which had gotten underway? Initially, that was all CIOs and senior leaders, but at this point, it has essentially been run. It's run by all the C, the chief security officers of the different bureaus and the department. Yeah, the mm -hmm. the, the cyber the cyber uh, task force came out came about later. It was precipitated oh, okay. by this event, oh, all but right. also precipitated by that availability of funding from Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, we, of course, we have a CISO council, mm -hmm. and that was already underway. But but it was not as focused. The mm -hmm. what what the uh, this incident uh, originated, and then was further strengthened by the EO, the executive uh, order on on uh, zero trust architecture, mm -hmm. was that it put an absolute uh, you know focused light into the necessity for us to operate as an overall unit rather than deal with separate efforts. And mm -hmm. so that's how that came about. And the response from the CIOs and the CISOs uh, was uh, at first, you know, a little bit cautious, mm -hmm. but when they realized that this was, uh, you know, absolutely a pragmatic approach uh, to dealing with the, these issues across the entire uh, Department of Commerce, they fully embraced it and the results have been spectacular. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, and a lot of this reminds me of one of your, I, I don't know how famous this quote is, but I've heard you say it a few times in interviews, that the, one of the riskiest strategies a CIO can follow is to, uh, to stay with the status quo. Um, where does that come from in terms of your management and leadership lessons over time? And how has... Um, how does that uh, inform the way you're approaching your job today? So, so that actually comes from my educational background in biology and evolutionary biology, right? Mm -hmm. The status quo uh, effectively uh, without evolutionary pressure uh, is ensuring that you're constantly decaying in your opportunity, ability to respond to your environment, mm -hmm. right? And so for me, uh, you know, uh, having an analysis of the end games 
and then making establishing a, a North Star mm -hmm. in terms of how you're going to, to migrate to, to accomplish those end games is the end all be all of technological evolution. Uh, and it is an extension of biological evolution. And so uh, I, I think that uh, there are great lessons to be learned from that in terms of agility and ability to adapt being the crucial part about not only surviving, but thriving in a very fast changing technological environment. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> in terms of staffing up and having having the talent that you need for all these various efforts, uh, that is one of the, and that may be one of those cliches about government service that that is no longer true. But the the difficulty of getting the top flight talent to work for government organizations, the, a lot has been written about that over the years. How does that look? to you now. You have spent a good chunk of your career inside of government organizations, and you always seem to be doing pretty leading edge stuff. So how, um, how are you attracting and retaining talent uh, these days? And tell us what that landscape looks like for you now. I think one of the, the biggest um, sort of uh, wrong assumptions about government mm -hmm. is about the quality of the individuals mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> their ability to become completely engaged into an environment and driving it forward. I have been exposed to exceptional talent inside of the federal government mm -hmm. that is absolutely driven uh, to achieve, uh, you know, uh, very, very haughty goals uh, by virtue of their dedication to public service. So that has been mm -hmm. a very, very rewarding. Uh, it is across. Is it across the board? Is it 100% of the folks? Of course not. It never is, mm -hmm. and it never is in the private sector. It never is in the nonprofit environment. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there are there are always you know the leaders, and there's always laggards. Uh, but what I found is that when given the proper uh, you know atmosphere of achievement, of accountability, but also of innovation, that the overall majority of the people that are in the technical arena and the IT arena. Mm -hmm are at their very core people that want to be iconoclastic. They want to be change agents. They want to, to pursue the latest and greatest. And so it is a marriage of having a good strategic plan, a good vision, and then putting it together with a recruiting message uh, that, into, that in, makes people enthusiastic about joining you. Mm -hmm. And then once they joined, to, to, to be there, to, to be retained. Um, of course, training is an enormous part of that. Yeah. And, and when you talk about training, it is important that the training and your emphasis on that also mirrors your strategic direction, right? Mm -hmm. So for us, you know, software as a service mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and abstracting all of the lower layers of IT environments is an absolute priority which means that we have to migrate these folks that have been doing system administration <clears throat> at, at a very granular level, server mm -hmm. administration, network administration, that they are now prepared to run into the next layer of, uh, of uh, tasks that are uh, you know, far uh, you know, abstracted from the lower operational levels. Mm -hmm. And so we wanna make sure that people can migrate uh, into, uh, you know, uh, into writing code uh, right mm -hmm. into doing analysis, into doing project management mm -hmm. uh, that leverages both internal and external resources, and also in developing uh, uh, procurement abilities and understandings that in the federal government are so essential 
because of the regulatory environment associated with procurement, mm -hmm. which is far more complicated than the private sector. And so once you mm -hmm. offer people those opportunities, right, it, it is often, you know, a little bit of a challenge in terms of, hey, you can no longer be administering servers that you've been administering for the past 20 years because we have none. They're gone. They're gone. The data centers are gone, mm -hmm. right? They are somewhere out there provided by somebody else who specializes in that. Yeah. Um, but I found that the folks that are truly enthusiastic about the mission uh, understand mm -hmm. that and can migrate into the new skill sets that are required uh, and necessitated by the implementation of your strategic vision. Well, and I can remember back uh, since you and I have known each other for so long, I can remember a decade ago, more than a decade ago, where you were talking um, about the importance of cloud as, you know, a, a new, uh, the new infrastructure, the way to get out of all of these data centers and the legacy systems that were kind of weighing everybody down. So, and now here we are in 22 and cloud is very much accepted across the landscape. What is, when you think about emerging technologies, what is really interesting you these days? You know, you were mm. you were right about cloud a decade ago. You've certainly software as a service, that idea about abstracting to the application layer, the focus on customer and all those sort of things. Um, what What's next on your horizon when you look at the emerging technologies, the things that we should be talking more about more today, but 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, well, that was obvious maybe. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, so that is an interesting proposition because I think mm -hmm. that the trend for abstraction will continue mm -hmm. ad infinitum uh, until such time as uh, organizations focus on only the applications that are specific to them and nothing else. Because mm -hmm. nothing, all of the other issues have no additional value add to, to them, be there in the federal government right, mm -hmm. or be them in the private sector where they have to focus on their competitors, on their markets, right? And, and so to me, that is going to be a continuing trend. The, the uh, cybersecurity arena mm -hmm. is an area where I think we're going to be experiencing massive, massive change. Why is that? Um, you know, ever since we started having computer environments, cybersecurity has been a concern. Mm -hmm. But it has never reached uh, the, the apogee that, uh, at which we find ourselves now because systems were isolated. Mainframes were isolated and you know, to access them would require physical access, um, <clears throat> both uh, you know, in person or from a, a physical element, let's say a cable that was connected to this. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All of a sudden, we are dealing with an environment where the internet of things is effectively a reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, the next uh, challenge is going to be uh, the fact that humans are going to become part of the Internet of Things. Oh, that, uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, that we are going to be looking at more and more uh, the physical aspect of being a human being is going to be used uh, for uh, identity, for mm -hmm. access control at a granularity level that we've never experienced before. And this is by virtue of social evolution and mm -hmm. cultural evolution. And so, you know, uh, you know, people talk about the chip implants and all of that. I, was I, thinking honestly, about that. I think yeah. that that is going to be, uh, to a large degree, a reality sooner mm -hmm. than people expect. Okay? Uh, because uh, we, we really can't rely on anything else uh, to, to establish an identity. But then the identity itself is going to have a component on the other side of the equation because individuals change, individuals evolve. 
And although it is a little bit scary, I think that not only are we going to have zero trust architecture where we establish that an individual is actually indeed uh, eligible to enter that system, to work, uh, to make that transaction, everything else. But on the other side of the equation, a constant renewal of the reputation of that individual to continue to do those functions, but almost on a real-time basis. It's mm. a scary proposition. But if you think about it, <clears throat> one of the components of zero trust architecture is to establish the identity of the individual and therefore the eligibility to do certain things. But we always have the insider threat problem that you could have an individual that is absolutely authorized to do something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But whose ability to pursue nefarious activities is totally independent of the fact that he or she is trusted. And then yeah. we get into an environment where we have to constantly reevaluate that trust. Now, mm -hmm. this is something that is, um, <clears throat> that, that is scary. That is scary. Because you're talking about uh, almost a, a, the equivalent of a social score on a constant basis mm -hmm. um, that is going to be, to be driving, you know, very uh, fast and granular interactions and, uh, and approvals uh, in terms of access to systems. And that is going to be an enormous challenge yeah. because yeah. culturally it's going to go uh, against some of our, you know, most firmly held beliefs in terms of privacy, mm. some of our most firmly held beliefs in terms of independence. Um, mm. But uh, that will be necess necessitated by the constant evolution of the, of the environment. Yes. <clears throat> now um, you'd mentioned that your original training was in evolutionary biology. Do you still read a lot in the sciences? How do you how do you keep yourself updated and up to date on emerging technologies and where science is heading and this sort of thing? Every day, every day, really? there are a set of topics, a set of websites, a set mm -hmm. of uh, of publications that I follow on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that more and more they create an ecosystem, an environment where everything is related. <clears throat> and so uh, to me, that's still one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of our societal and cultural evolution mm -hmm. is the fact that uh, some long held beliefs and, and knowledge continues to be reaffirmed on a daily basis um, by virtue of, uh, of, uh, of the way that the society is evolving, mm -hmm. right? It is not that difficult to imagine our current society evolving into was portrayed um, in science fiction uh, mm. in the 50s, in the 60s by visionaries uh, that combined all of the sciences, the natural sciences, uh, into a vision of a universe mm -hmm. um, to which we are rapidly migrating. <clears throat> and so I find great comfort in knowing what some of those end games are. Yeah. by virtue of that uh, broader spectrum of uh, knowledge uh, acquisition uh, and retention and updating mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that uh, that gives you that insight okay. um, i think that uh, you know one of the dangers of being too focused on one environment is that sometimes you fail to realize that the societal cultural scientific uh, biological uh, astral uh, you know, uh, influences on mm -hmm. that environment extend way beyond what you are looking at in a very definite and focused environment. It's, mm -hmm. uh, we need in-depth subject matter experts, but when those in-depth, uh, 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 you know, uh, subject matter experts mm -hmm. fail to realize all of the issues that are affecting the universe in which they deal with, 
that can become quite a dangerous proposition. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, talent and subject matter expertise, and that, that has come up a lot in our conversation. And um, are there new approaches that you're using that either the Department of Commerce or the bureaus have been collaborating on to attract more of this talent? Because the way, you know, uh, the, the days of going to university job fairs uh, have pretty much ended. And I remember a lot of CIOs told me when the pandemic was first underway, they said, this is so amazing. I can recruit from anywhere now because I don't have to get them to come into the headquarters buildings. But of course, everybody was in that same situation. So have you seen, has that helped? Have you seen it? Do you take a different approach now in the way you are, you and your bureaus are trying to attract ta talent, talented technologists into federal service? Well, uh, I mean, the, the 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 net is cast very, very wide now for a variety of reasons. Okay. You know, um, all of the issues associated with being able to have remote work mm -hmm. that gives you access to a completely new population, right? It does to mm -hmm. the issues of of diversity that that are you know front and center now, but for my organizations have been a a long-standing standard that needed to be abided by, mm -hmm. and so. Um, you know, my friend, at the end of the day, it's still, I, I personally still rely on the fact that whenever we're going to hire somebody to a senior position, mm -hmm. I want to interview that person as the last step. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I want to understand the motivation. I want to understand the adaptability. I want to understand the flexibility and the intellectual curiosity associated mm -hmm. with that individual that is going to allow he or she to come in and completely uh, you know, uh, upgrade the environment by virtue of their presence, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and this is on an individual basis, you know, the ability to work with others and everything else, mm -hmm. uh, but also you know, that, that intellectual curiosity that propels innovation, right? Yes. <clears throat> you know, I'm never going to hire somebody that is you know, incredibly skilled, but when asked why they want to work for the Department of Commerce, tells me that it's because their commute is going to be a little shorter. Right. And I've had people tell me that uh, or that they're yeah. looking for, you know, getting to the next grade level. Yeah. Those are not the things that, that are interesting, uh, you know, uh, to us in terms of mm -hmm. getting people on board. And I think we've been very successful in attracting and retaining uh, the kind of individuals uh, that take you to the next level, that, mm -hmm. that bring to the table, uh, you know, maybe a little different angle and of view into a, an environment that is less status quo mm -hmm. that is less established knowledge and more about expanding the boundaries of that particular job or that particular mm -hmm. job description and so it's a constant search for talent you know we're competing with uh, the private sector where they have all kinds of tests that they apply on a constant basis psychotechnic tests psychological tests mm -hmm. performance tests right <clears throat> that are designed to unearth those innovators those people capable of the next level of operations mm. um, but that has not prevented us from finding some remarkable gems right mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and and continuing to move forward again I think mm -hmm. there are an enormous amount of really really talented people that are very interested in in uh, in being part of a solution that is larger than themselves, mm -hmm. and I think that the federal government offers that type of opportunity by virtue of what we do yes. and our role in providing services to the citizenry. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, that takes on a whole different dimension because we're such an influential country that not only are we affecting uh, our local communities, our local regions, our local country, 
but also in a lot of ways driving the standards for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is very, very enticing, certainly very enticing to me. Yes. Uh, well, because uh, the yeah. impact is then global and uh, and that is so amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that is consequential, as you would say, right? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, yes. Um, I was just this morning, I was uh, speaking with the CIO of a very, very large banking company, and he was pointing out how important it is for them to get across their uh, their mission and their purpose, you know, in terms of funding communities and helping people build their finances and that sort of thing. And it was, we spent a lot of time talking about purpose and mission. Um, and this is, you know, a big bank, a big financial services company. So that, that understanding, I, I mean, I see that across CIOs in a whole lot of different industries, that having a mission, having a purpose, having something consequential you're doing, especially if you're looking to attract, um, you know, not people that are looking for a great retirement package, but are Gen Z or millennials and are really looking for that, that ability to change the world in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think it's always been there to a certain degree, right? It mm -hmm. has always been there, but it has taken on a new, a new strength, a new life, because we are now so much more aware of circumstances throughout the world on an immediate basis by mm -hmm. virtue of social media, by virtue of, uh, you know, uh, you know, video that is ubiquitous and Im available immediately that uh, to a large, uh, to a large, in a large way, we have stopped looking at our own belly buttons uh, as, uh, as sort of the universe. Mm -hmm. We have stopped looking at just our family as the universe. We, we, the universe is, is far broader than that. And when you have, I don't know, I think that most people, you know, given the opportunity, want to do good. Yeah, they, I think people, people rise the to, they rise to the occasion is what I, I find. And I, th I know that you saw that when you came into the DOC a, a, a little more than two years ago, I guess, two and a half years, and, Correct. you know, saw all of the shifting and the changing that had to happen uh, across the various bureaus and leadership, um, which is a, this is a great place to pivot into talking a little bit more about servant leadership. I know that that's a concept that has always been uh, very important to you. Uh, years ago, I remember seeing you do a, a presentation. I think you called it the CIO call of duty. Mm. And, and that was probably more about using, it was kind of using your power of the helicopter view for more good, for ways to drive the business <clears throat> forward. Um, talk about that a little bit about how long, because I, I, this is not something new to you, but I hear it a lot more these days when I talk to CIOs, that idea, the concept of servant leadership. What does it mean to you? Well, um, uh, to, to me, uh, you know, working for an organization uh, that has a purpose, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, creates value that is uh, that extends past just its shareholders, its shareholders mm -hmm. and, and immediate stakeholders, as has always been very enticing. And I found that uh, you know when when you dedicate your life uh, to to service and to the betterment of the human condition, that that tends to open up tremendous opportunities uh, mm -hmm. and that allows you to be consequential. Uh, and so it has always been very important to me. Uh, I, I've, I've always wanted to select an environment where um, I didn't know much about what they were doing, right? But by virtue of coming on board with a fresh view, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, I could ask all of the stupid questions that nobody that was on board uh, dared to ask or thought about asking yeah. because they were so steeped into their uh, their working environment. <clears throat> and so by virtue of doing that, you know, you can ask the questions that prompt actual change, not only to that organization, mm-hmm. but often to the industry itself. Yeah. And if that change to the industry itself turns into benefit to the overall community, then effectively by leading, you become a servant of a greater purpose because you enable new paradigms, new ways of operating mm-hmm. that are sometimes radically different and far more effective. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry, we, we saw that uh, mm-hmm. in, in at PBS, we saw that with, with a dramatically new paradigm for handling content. Um, and, and that can be adapted to everything. It can be adapted to everything because... Mm-hmm. It is amazing how consequential the work in a small organization, with a with a specific you know uh, you mm-hmm. know uh, with a specific purpose, can spread across across an entire industry by virtue of competition. Yeah, and so you you affect a very large number of people. And if the industry in which you operate is an industry that has a greater purpose in life, that can be you know a game changer across the entire globe. Mm-hmm. And so um, that, that's what I call servant leadership, because effectively you're leading into a better place for the, the human condition. Yeah. Um, when you think about, you know, the coming year for 22 and even 23, when you imagine uh, the influence and the accomplishments that you can get to and through for the Department of Commerce, what what do you hope to see? What will the people that are watching what your bureaus and your part of the government is doing, uh, what will they see in terms of a big priority or a really strategic move? Is there anything? And of course, if it's top secret, feel free to tell us all about it here. (laughs) So uh, when I first came on board, um, I laid down a marker that uh, I would like to see the Department of Commerce, by virtue of, uh, of the importance of its bureaus and the work that it does, mm-hmm. become the, the leader in technological transformation across the federal government, right? Um, and, uh, and that process does not take place overnight, right? Mm-hmm. You get into an environment uh, and there is a certain set of circumstances. And in order to get to that next level, you have to take care of all of those things that bring no value whatsoever, but that are impeding your rapid progress. Mm-hmm. And so over the last two years, we have doing a lot, we've been doing a lot of cleanup of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But as we're doing that, we're effectively increasing our agility and our ability to do rapid deployments. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of a, a sort of a synergistic situation where it, it is an accelerant. In other words, agility. Uh, becomes the the combustion that is going to allow you to achieve escape velocity, mm-hmm. right? To achieve escape velocity so that you get away from the old paradigms and you start operating in a different level. Yeah. And so for us, it's going to be about seeing uh, that 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 drag that constantly drags operations. Uh, after all, mm-hmm. across the federal government, I believe right now, still sixty to seventy percent of all expenses are uh, just, just for operations and maintenance. The, O&M, keeping, right? the keeping the lights on, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so moving that percentage from 60 to 40 mm-hmm. means that the other part went from 40 to 60. 
right? <clears throat> and you can continue to evolve that situation mm-hmm. uh, so that it continues to provide greater and greater flexibility, greater and f- greater acceleration, and your ability to, to totally change the paradigm. Customer experience, all right? There's mm-hmm. just been an executive order in terms of customer experience. <clears throat> for better or for worse, when you're spending 60 to 70% on O&M, mm-hmm. you cannot put the type of resources into that layer of interface with your clientele, yeah, right. whether you are yeah. the IRS, whether you're the patent office, whether you're the census, mm-hmm. right? Where you achieve a, a seamless interaction and relationship with your clients, mm-hmm. right? That is far more productive. That is easier on them. That provides value in terms of simplicity, mm-hmm. in terms of completeness and accuracy of information, in terms of access to information in such a way that it is very easy to find mm-hmm. and very easy to leverage. Yeah. Right. And so for us, it's going to be a continuous effort to create to create those embers of, of innovation. Right. Mm-hmm. By virtue of getting rid of all of the uh, jetsam and flotsam of O&M. Uh, mm. That is going to continue, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and all under an umbrella of cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you're down or if you're hacked, you're no good for anybody. Uh, the, so that that creates a protective bubble around mm-hmm. all of our, all of our uh, uh, systems, yeah. right? And that allows us to not have to worry about that because, you know, it has been well taken care of with the migration to zero trust architecture. And then mm-hmm. the eventual migration to some of the other protocols that I briefly talked about uh, that will drive, uh, you know, human interaction with uh, with computer systems. Yes. Uh, and so um, it is never a big bang approach. OK, mm-hmm. it is always evolutionary, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and when you go through an evolutionary process, the the time frame between a, a cycle of innovation and the value that it brings to the table is constantly being reduced, right? It took billions of years, I'm sorry, hundreds of millions of years to get from a unicellular organism into a mammal. But then from the mammal into Homo sapiens sapiens was a much shorter period of time. And Mm -hmm. the the results that it brought to the table far exponentially larger in terms of the evolution of mankind, Mm -hmm. right? And so that is going to continue. And we got to make sure that we're ready for that next layer of innovation to come faster and faster and faster um, because you're spending less and less time thinking about the fact that in our particular case, there are mitochondria in our cells that are currently working very hard so that we can do what you and I are doing. Yes. Right. Nobody thinks about that anymore. Good. Well, (laughs) let's get to the next layer. Well, I always find that you are thinking very deeply about a lot of these, a lot of these issues. So it's, this has really been, it's always fascinating talking with you, Andre, and I've really enjoyed this. And I wonder if you remember the, when we talked just, I I think last week, you said there were three words that you want on your tombstone. Not that we want to think ahead to your tombstone, but do you want, uh, do you remember what those were? The three, essentially your three, what are those three words? So um, thoughtful, Mm -hmm. pragmatic, and consequential. And so, uh, and, and it's funny, Mary Van, because here, here we're talking about tombstones. Wow, a little bit morbid. But, but here's the reality: um, that was that question was put to me by uh, a, a teacher of mine in a morals and religion class in Portugal in the fifth grade. Wow. And, yeah, and he, he asked us all to write 
what we thought would be the best words to have on your on your tombstone. Yeah. So he's asking nine year olds, ten year olds yeah. about this. It was remarkably insightful on his part yeah. because it made us think about what really was important in life. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I owe him a big debt of gratitude for, for having that insight because it has become a driving force for my entire life. Do you remember what you wrote down when you were nine? I know. I, those are the things I wrote down. When you were nine years old? That's correct. All right. Well, I might have been 10 at the time. All right. <clears throat> You are. Sometimes you are positively frightening, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <clears throat> All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you again for joining us today. It has absolutely been great talking with you, and I really appreciate all the time you put into this, but also all the thoughtful, all the thoughtful thinking behind it. So thanks so much. Well, Mary friend, it's always a pleasure. And uh, okay. I've told you before, I'll say it in front of everybody. It is amazing how consequential you have been in my career. And I've always found you to be incredibly thoughtful and ultimately pragmatic. So, well, uh, thank you so much. I'm just going to float right out of the studio now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You have a wonderful day. If you have joined us late and are sitting there thinking, oh, I wish I could have seen that entire interview. Do not worry. This is uh, going to be my interview with Andre Mendez is going to be here on LinkedIn through the rest of today. And then will also be very quickly available on CIO.com and also on YouTube's IDG Tech Talk channel. CIO Leadership Live also shows up on all of your popular podcast platforms as an audio podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today as much as I did with CIO Andre Mendez of the U.S. Department of Commerce, and that you will join us back here again next time when I will return on Monday, February 7th, and we will hear from CIO Scott Case of Truist Bank. Thanks again for joining us today, and please take a moment to find and subscribe, if you haven't, uh, to our free channel, IDG Tech Talk, where you can find all of the 70-plus previous episodes of CIO Leadership Live in case you're facing the weekend with nothing to binge watch. We invite you to binge watch CIO <coughs> Leadership Live. Thank you so much for joining us today. Stay well and safe out there, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.